From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. In the spring of 2011, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton addressed the U.S. Islamic World Forum. The first Arab Human Development Report in 2002 found that Arab women's political and economic participation was the lowest in the world. Successive reports have shown little progress. She added that there could be no further progress toward democracy without fair and equal treatment of women. You cannot have a claim to a democracy if half the population is left out. But Clinton also noted that the issue of women's rights is separate from the role of religion in their lives. All over the world, we see living proof that Islam and women's rights are compatible. How much living proof there is of the compatibility between Islam and women's rights today is the source of a lively debate among women's rights advocates and scholars. And I think that the notion of Islamic feminism means a variety of different things depending on who you speak to. Sahar Amr is a professor of Arabic and Arab cultures at the University of Sydney in Australia. There are some Muslims who refuse the notion that you need even to coin a term called Islamic feminism because for them Islam is feminist by definition, so why do you need to make a big deal out of it? But there are also a lot of uh, Muslim women who embrace the term Islamic feminism because they want precisely to reject the notion that European and American feminists of the first generation regarded them as oppressed. But for many who look not at Islam itself, but how it's being interpreted in many countries today, that seems like a stretch. Sarah Hader is the development director of Ex-Muslims of North America. That's an organization that builds support networks for people who've left the religion. She left as a teenager. I was taught growing up that Islam was actually a very pro-woman religion, that Islam gave women rights that they never had before, at least in the time of Muhammad. And it was kind of just repeated to me over and over, and I believed it to some extent until I started to look into modesty codes, what it means truly to be covered up as a woman. Uh, I always thought it was meant to protect me, but slowly I started to feel that it wasn't so much to protect me as it was to constrain me. And that was part of the reason I left. Hader is an atheist, so she finds all religions problematic. But she feels that Islam is especially rigid. She believes it's possible to be a feminist and a Muslim, but only if you overlook certain verses of the Quran, which she says are decidedly anti-woman. There are countries across the world, I mean Turkey especially, where it's a largely secular country and people keep their religion private and keep that in, you know, the, the home. And I think in places like that, it is possible. The difficulty becomes when you put the religion completely as a center of society and as a basis for law. There are 49 Muslim-majority countries, according to the Pew Research Center, and most of them have legal codes influenced by Sharia, or Islamic law. Traditionally, Sharia determines everything from who should get the death penalty to what women should wear. And some fundamentalists follow this law to the letter. But many academics, including Harvard Divinity School professor Leila Ahmed, believe there's more than enough room for interpretation. Feminists are saying today, Muslim feminists, just as Christian feminists have done and are doing, 
that actually you need to reinterpret these texts. And now that we have finally arrived at a point when we recognize the justice of considering women equal, we have to reinterpret the text in light of understanding that that is the core message in the Quran, the equality of all human beings. Islamic feminists in many Muslim-majority countries have spent years studying and reinterpreting Islamic texts, especially the passages concerning divorce, inheritance, and child custody. But Mohammed Sayed, the founder of Ex-Muslims of North America, says it's going to take more than a reinterpretation to make any real progress with Islam. Most other religions have gone through a period of uh, enlightenment, reformation, where they have, their values have been challenged. So if you look at Christianity, a few hundred years ago, the Bible was inerrant. Even translating the Bible was sinful and you would be punished and you could have heresy trials. Um, that has changed dramatically in the modern world. In the Muslim world, that isn't the case. In Saudi Arabia, you, heresy still exists. In 14 countries, leaving the religion will get you killed. That is happening in the 21st century. He says Islam is in desperate need of a reformation. This same message was delivered earlier this year at Al-Azhar in Egypt, a mosque and university. It's considered the world's most influential center of Islamic study. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi spoke there before a large gathering of Islamic scholars and clerics. He says, we are in need of a religious revolution. You imams are responsible before God. The entire world is waiting for your next move. What that revolution might look like is still being determined, but female Egyptian scholars are hoping it will include new perspectives on the way Islam and feminism interact. Reporter Kimberly Adams brings us this story from Cairo. In the 1975 Egyptian movie Oridu Hallan, I Want a Solution, there's a scene where the main character, a mother seeking a divorce from her adulterous husband, sits in a courtroom listening to other women who plead with the judge for access to their money, property, or even children, all denied based on supposedly Sharia-derived Egyptian law. Most of the women in the movie are unveiled, reflecting a time in Egypt when short skirts and high boots were common, but women had fewer legal rights than they do today. When I was 15, 16, I did wear mini skirts and high heels and everything. But what was the situation in education and in work and in marriage and in divorce and in independent life and autonomy and agency? That was not very good either. So the idea of veil or no veil or the idea of appearance is not always an accurate measurement of what's going on. Omaima Abu Bakr is a professor at Cairo University and now dresses much more conservatively, including wearing a veil. She edited a book on Islamic feminism and co-founded the Women and Memory Forum, a women's rights NGO. We have a, a, a huge library that has all sorts of resources, books, old and new. She believes Islam and feminism can coexist, but with some reinterpretations of the classical texts. We're correcting, we're reforming past patriarchal interpretations of the religion. Most of the conflicts between Islam and modern women's rights she attributes to culture rather than the actual religion, since she sees Islam as a dynamic religion adaptable to the times. In her research, she digs into the Quran and other sources of Sharia law, analyzing from what she calls a perspective of equality and justice. I had to, I still am, 
day in, day out, trying to deal with these conflicting or, or divergent uh, discourses, trying to deal with them on the personal level because I have a personal stake at this. This is part of my self-perception, a, a practicing Muslim person and a feminist too. She represents one of several perspectives on how observant Muslim women can merge their religious beliefs with their feminist values. Look now, I put this salt. Amna Nusir is in her kitchen making termis, an Egyptian snack made of broad beans boiled and soaked in salt water. She's preparing for a visit from her adult children and their families and is looking forward to preparing their favorite dishes. I am and have been an example of this Islamic feminism movement. Nosser teaches Islamic philosophy and comparative religion in the women's section at Al-Azhar University. She also served as the dean of the section for a decade before she quasi-retired to focus on teaching and advocating for a stronger role for women at the government-affiliated religious institution and in society in general. She often comments on women's issues on television and says she gets a lot of questions from young women studying at the conservative Al-Azhar about what Islam says about their rights as women. I welcome the feminism movement. I accept any new ideas, whether feminism, women's rights, or their future, provided they don't wander away from the fixed teachings of our Islamic law. She argues if you go far enough back to the origins of Islam, the original writings and meanings grant women the legal and social rights they need. The important rights of women, whether in inheritance, education, participating in society, all this is taught in al-Azhar. But other scholars think trying to apply social rules from a 1,400-year-old religion to the modern world is a bit unrealistic. Marwa Sharafeddin is sitting in a busy coffee shop on her last day in Cairo before traveling. She helped found several women's rights NGOs here and works with the international organization Musawa, which advocates for family law reform in several countries. Now, when we say Islamic feminism, for me, it's a kind of feminism that draws inspiration from an Islam that calls for equality and justice, but also it's also a notion that does not exclude the lived realities of women and men today. She considers herself secular, but believes feminists need to accept that religion has a role to play in the women's rights movement. Islamic feminists differ over whether laws need to be reformed to better reflect the original Islamic jurisprudence or whether the religiously based laws should be tossed out altogether. Sharifuddin gives the example of preferential treatment for men in family inheritance laws, which are based on Islamic law. She argues that maybe made sense back when men were the sole source of income for extended families, but not anymore. Today in Egypt, a third of Egyptian households are headed by women. They are the main breadwinners. How are you going to talk about men being the protectors and providers of women according to Islamic law when you have this kind of reality here? She is among many women's rights activists watching carefully to see whether calls by Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi for a religious revolution will extend to revolutionizing the way Islamic laws are applied to women. I think that Islamic feminism is actually going to be the entry point for this whole renewal of Islamic discourse. 
So it will be up to the women themselves, the Muslim women themselves, who are not willing to let go of their religion, but at the same time they are not willing to accept being treated as second-class citizens because of a certain version of religion. This is why scholars like Cairo University's Abu Bakr are encouraged by channels of communication that have opened with al-Azhar and the government on these issues. She says that type of political engagement is a holdover from the Arab Spring when average Egyptians begin calling their government to account. She hopes the debate not only inspires her students, but also those outside the Muslim world who think the ideas of Islam and feminism cannot coexist. People need to uh, rethink this idea of an Islamic feminism uh, as an oxymoron. Put it in the context of, there's Christian feminism, by the way, there's Jewish feminism, there's Buddhist feminism. So it is not a freak phenomenon that Islamic feminism, and it's not even um, something that came out of the blue. It's not one paradigm, it's not one shape, it's not only mainstream Western feminism. And just like those different perspectives on feminism itself, she emphasizes there can be just as many different perspectives on Islamic feminism, as unique as each Muslim woman. And that, she says, is good for the religion and good for women. For America Abroad, I'm Kimberly Adams in Cairo. You're listening to Understanding Islamic Feminism on America Abroad. Coming up, what does the Quran say about the role of women? Some say it lays out the roles for women explicitly. Others say it's open to interpretation. The trouble is, men have been doing most of the interpreting. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brandt, and you're listening to Understanding Islamic Feminism on America Abroad. So what does the Quran say about the role of women? Scholars have been arguing over that for a long time. In 1979, the UN General Assembly adopted the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or SIDAW, a kind of international bill of rights for women. Around the same time, a group of women in Malaysia were gathering to discuss their own experience. They called themselves Sisters in Islam and were led by Zaina Anwar. So much of what we were hearing um, was so discriminatory towards, you know, a woman has to obey her husband, the man has a right to four wives, the man has a right to beat his wife. And women who were suffering in their marriages and wanted redress to take place go to the Sharia courts or go to the religious departments asking for solutions to the problems of domestic violence, of polygamy, of non-maintenance, of cruelty in the marriage, were told by people on the other side of the counter to say, oh, that's his right in Islam. His right to have four wives, his right to beat you, his right to demand obedience. And women were calling us up to complain about all these injustices. But at the end of their complaints, they will always sigh in defeat and say, but that's his right in Islam, isn't it? It's a man's right in Islam, isn't it? Like as if there's no alternative to that condition that they are in. This male-centric notion is also behind the rules that pertain to dress. Here's American-born imam Khalid Yassin. Now for the Muslim lady, the wearing of the hijab is a protection for her. It's a distinction for her. Yes, it is a uniform so that she will be known to be a Muslim. She would not be molested. She would not be insulted. And no need for a man 
to stare at her and look at her because there is nothing appearing of her that would cause any unnatural attraction. Other imams are challenging this orthodoxy. Sohib Webb, also an American, has argued that mosques need to loosen their restrictions on how women are allowed to worship. Here he discusses a mosque where the lights in the women's section are turned off during prayer. If a man is coming to the mosque to look through that window at 65-year-old aunties in Rukuv, he has a psychological problem that goes beyond the mosque. I mean, you don't go to the mosque, you don't go to the mosque to get hot. I mean, and I hate to say it that way. And I think that goes back to one thing, we're not really comfortable with who we are. Either way, says activist Zaina Anwar, the words in the Quran are open to interpretation. And it was for us a really liberating experience to discover so many verses in the Quran that talk about justice, about equality, about compassion, about men and women being each other's protector and friend. You know, these wonderful verses in the Quran that we discovered, and the question then arose, how come these wonderful egalitarian verses in the Quran did not become the source of law and practice and culture in, you know, gender relationship in the Muslim context. So this is really an issue of authority. And we felt, you know, we were convinced that the Quran has a very liberating message and an egalitarian message, a just message towards women, and that we were determined that we want to change the discourse on Islam and women's rights in the public space. To that end, in 2009, Zaina Anwar, along with a group of other influential Islamic feminists, formed Musawa, an international women's rights organization focused on Muslim family law. Musawa means equality in Arabic, and Anwar says her religion at its core is inherently equal. You know, I really, really believe, you know, it's a fundamental article of faith for me that God is just, that Islam is just, and I'm outraged that the religion is used in ways that turn people, Muslims, against the religion because of this misogynistic, unjust uh, discourse. And for me, I really want us to be comfortable to own our religion and for it to make sense to the realities of our lives. And for me, you know, I feel the work that Musawa does offers hope of how to be Muslim in the context of the modern world, you know, and the possibilities of change, of equality, of justice, of egalitarian thinking and practice in Islam, it is possible. It exists in our religious texts, it exists in our tradition, and it must exist in the realities of our lives today. Another founding member of Musawa is Ziba Mir Hosseini. Her story begins in Iran. I was born in Muslim and raised as a Muslim. But after the 1979 revolution, uh, we came to see a different face of Islam. I married in 1980, just at the time um, uh, shortly after the revolution succeeded. And uh, my ex-husband was an educated, secular man, and we were equals. And uh, after the uh, revolution, the culture started to change. And all these veneers of modernity dissolved. And so the patriarchal aspect came out. And after the 1979 revolution, the family protection law or legal reforms that were introduced in 1960s were dismantled. So there was a return to the earlier law which is based on Islamic jurisprudence. And in Islamic jurisprudence, a man has the unilateral right to divorce. As an undergrad, Mir Hosseini began to look at the roots of these practices and how to get around them. And I learned it 
well enough to negotiate my divorce. She went on to graduate study at Cambridge, and she's now a legal anthropologist at SOAS, University of London. And I think it is important to understand how patriarchy became entangled with Muslim legal tradition. Because then we can deconstruct it and untangle it. Because it is in the name of religion that women are oppressed and their rights are denied. But religion is not always an obstacle. It can be the source of empowerment. A case in point is Mudawana, or Family Code, adopted by Morocco's government in 2004. This new set of laws was put into place to address women's rights and gender equality within an international and Islamic legal framework. When it was passed, many embraced the reforms as evidence that gender equality is compatible with Islamic principles. And Morocco was considered to have one of the most progressive family laws in the Arab world. Ten years later, we check in on how it's been going. Jake Warga reports. The courthouse in Azaru, up in the Atlas Mountains, is, well, I guess you call it the county seat, where lots of locals come to present their issues to a judge. Family issues like divorce, inheritance, and child custody cases. The courthouse is as grand and plain as any government building in the world, and outside, men and women patiently wait their turn to see a judge. Though one woman is not so patient. She's saying, I don't have any rights, and I need the law to be on my side so that he can't hit me anymore. She's at the courthouse today seeking a divorce. A decade ago, her husband would have to give his permission for a divorce, but today, under the Mudawana Family Code, she can ask the judge for herself. It was quite revolutionary compared to the old family law code. This code is called Mudawana al-Usra, and Usra means family. Instead of the old code, that was Ahwela Shahsia, which means personal status code. So this code really takes into account the interest of the family. Nadia Semeveld is a legal anthropologist studying the implementations of the Mudawana in rural populations, seeing how the law works out in practice. Morocco has one of the most progressive uh, family law codes, uh, except for Tunisia. In Egypt and in many Muslim countries, the wife has a legal obligation to be obedient to her husband. And that means that she must ask for his permission to leave the house for work or to buy groceries. She should, legally speaking, ask for his permission. Women in Morocco, as in many Muslim-majority countries, run the home and drive many of the family decisions. So it's only natural they should have some say in their and their family's legal status. People whom we are calling Islamic feminists, they will look into the sources of Islamic law in a way that, you know, is in line with how they would like to improve women's rights. And I think that's what you might call Islamic feminism. But it's being employed by both men and women. Bonjour, monsieur. Je me présente. Alors, Mohamed Zarda. Hello, my name is Mohamed Zarda. I'm a judge and a father of a little girl. Mohamed Zerda is president of the Family Court Division in Tangier. There are 10 judges in his court, three male and seven female. I ask him if that makes a difference. This is simple. There's absolutely no difference between female judges and male judges, but we all went through the same school and same education. Every judge must be neutral. There are few sources a judge in Morocco can reference when making a decision. 
First is the Mudwana, then the Malachi school of jurisprudence, which relies on the Quran and the Hadiths, or the reported sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. The Quran is seen as the direct word from God. It's divine and cannot be changed or questioned. The Hadiths, on the other hand, were collected by men, so they're open to debate. Judge Zerda looks at both sources when deciding a case, but he sometimes has to go to the last source, to that gray area between what is written and local customs. Oh boy. He shows me a printout of one ruling where he awarded the woman in a divorce part of the family property. And I gave her a quarter of the property. Mind you that in the Sharia, the law gives her one-eighth. In another example, anthropologist Nadia Sonnevel tells me a story of a 12-year-old girl who asked a judge for permission to marry. And this female judge, she said, no way I'm going to allow you to marry. I mean, you're only 12 years old. So the girl left the court and then a year later she came back and she was pregnant and she again asked for permission. In Moroccan culture, it is very important that a child carry the family name of the father. And then this judge told me, what shall I do? If I refuse her request, she will give birth to a bastard. And so the child will have no future in Moroccan society. And if I allow it, I'm actually encouraging this phenomenon. In the end, the judge decided to legalize the marriage. Critics of the 2004 Family Code say it doesn't do enough to protect the rights of women and girls when it comes to minimum age of marriage, polygamy, and distribution of property. But more important, says Judge Zerda, is educating the population, especially in rural areas, about the rights they do have under the Mudawana. For us in the city of Tangier, we know that not all the people that come to the courts know about their rights and the law. Ten years since its implementation, the family law code in Morocco is pretty firmly established in the courts, but it's still working its way down to the people. For America Abroad, I'm Jake Warga in Morocco. That song is called Leila Manana by Moroccan hip-hop group Fanayr. It's about Mudawana, the country's revolutionary family law code passed in 2004. France has Europe's largest Muslim population. It's also one of Europe's most secular countries. Because the republic was founded after years of oppressive Catholic rule, France's separation of church and state is strict. Unlike here, France forbids the public expression of religion because that's seen as a possible infringement on other people's rights. A few years ago, France enacted the so-called burqa ban. If a Muslim woman wears a burqa in public, she can be fined. A man forcing a woman to wear one can be fined and imprisoned. The ban has stirred debate over whether France is protecting or persecuting religious freedom. Cheryl Brumley reports. Raihana, who just goes by her first name, is an actress, playwright, and now a filmmaker. We meet at her office at a production house in Paris. She points to a group of her characters sketched out in pencil taped to the wall. The movie she's working on is an adaptation of the play that brought her fame in France. It takes place in a bathhouse in Algeria. Most of the characters are dressed in robes and towels. One is dressed in a burqa. She says this character is, quote, super Islamist and not very nice. Her characterization isn't accidental. As a feminist in France, 
She has strong feelings about the burqa. Si, si on porte la burqa, on peut pas être intégré si on porte la burqa. You cannot be part of French society if you're wearing a burqa. The burqa is hiding not only the body but even the face, and and it's it's just absolutely not not possible. No, no, no. Raihana made international headlines in 2010 when she was attacked by two men on her way to the theater. They threw petrol on her and then tossed a cigarette at her face, which luckily didn't set her ablaze. It was something that I didn't expect at all. And it was really one of the most terrible days of my life. I still have nightmares about it. She knew they were angry about her play, which was critical of Islam. Although she grew up Muslim, Rehana, at 51 years old, is now an outspoken atheist. Although she thinks wearing the burqa is a choice, she says it is no less a sign of women's inferiority. When the French parliament banned it, she was all for it. For me, the burqa is, is a sign of submission. And what is submission? It, it means that it negates liberty. It, it means that we're a slave. So I was really for this prohibition on the burqa. Il faut bien que les personnes aient le droit de montrer leur visage, parce qu'en fait, people must have the right to show their face. The burqa represents violence towards a woman. She can't show her body because it belongs to her husband. À son mari. Philosopher Henri Peña Ruiz also supports the burqa ban. En France, effectivement, on peut pas accepter que quelqu'un soit entièrement voilé. We cannot accept that someone is completely covered in France. Which liberty are we choosing? Are we choosing the right of a woman to show her face or are we choosing the right of a religious chief to impose the burqa? Henri was a member of the Stasi Commission, a group of 20 experts, lawyers, academics, former ministers, who met in 2003 to review laïcité's place in modern-day France. This was years before the burqa ban and at a time when France was preoccupied with religion's place in public grade schools. Nous ne voulions pas we didn't want to restrain personal expression, and we wanted to say you can express your religious views, but not everywhere. And there are places where wearing these symbols can pose a problem. The commission ultimately recommended a ban on students and teachers wearing any kind of religious symbols in grade schools. This includes all Muslim headscarves, but also yarmulkes and crosses. And their intent was to shield students from conflict. En apparence, on restreint la liberté d'expression, mais en Though it may appear that we are limiting liberty, we are actually protecting the liberty of these young people. A school is a place of study, and the school must focus on what is common to the students, not on their differences. Religion is not something they have in common. As another scholar put it, Laïcité ensures that everybody in France is equal, whether they like it or not. Supporters say differences like religion only detract from shared values. Opponents say the 2004 ban, which reinterpreted laïcité for the 21st century, unfairly targeted France's Muslim population. Henri says that this is impossible. People who say this law only focuses on Islam suggest that it is somehow racist and stigmatizing. But the French Parliament would not pass a law that stigmatizes anyone. Le Parlement français n'aurait voté une loi de stigmatisation. I meet Hanane Karimi in central Paris. She's wearing jeans, a red sweater, and a near-matching red hijab, knotted tightly behind her head. 
As we walk on the street, her head drops. She looks up and focuses her gaze only when talking to me or when reading the metro map. She's received some unwanted attention in the past. So the first time I was with my uh, little brother and a woman, a old woman, who was with her uh, grandchild, said me very loudly, what you are wearing is provocation. So I, 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 I remember I was very shocked. I was like, I never imagined that someone could feel that my they uh, are a provocation. Hanine says one of the most damaging things about laïcité in France is that it conceals the real issues facing Muslim women. How do you fight chauvinism or racism or any topic, really, if there isn't freedom of expression? I'm convinced that if we don't put it in the public space, we don't have power to change it. Are you know, convinced of our right to speak about it. Because that is the challenge. The challenge is to be able to speak about this issue who are, you know, taboo. The French government shows no movement towards revisiting the ban on burqas. And right now, France is debating whether to extend the headscarf ban to universities. Support is wide-reaching and includes former Prime Minister Nicolas Sarkozy on the right and the Minister for Women's Rights on the left. For America Abroad, I'm Cheryl Brumley in Paris. You're listening to Understanding Islamic Feminism on America Abroad. Up next, how young women are pushing the boundaries of Islamic feminism. Visit our website for images, extended interviews, and more. We're at americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Understanding Islamic Feminism on America Abroad. In Islamic religious texts, women have some rights spelled out. They can divorce. They can inherit property. But legal anthropologist Ziba Mir Hosseini says equality now and equality back in the 7th century when Islam began are two very different things. Let's us remember that our understanding of equality is very local and contemporary. The way that we think about equality and justice was not the way that people did when the Quran was revealed, okay? The Quran does not talk about directly about equality. The Quran talks about justice, talks about fairness, talks about the common good. So equality is implied in all these verses. But justice at that time did not include equality because slavery was there. And what the Quran does, does not abolish slavery, but shows us the trajectory. And we cannot say that the Quran condones or approves of the slavery, but at the same time does not dismantle it. Mir Hosseini says it's modern social and political forces that have dismantled slavery, and it's these same forces that will dismantle a form of religion that sees women as inferior. The domination, the colonialism, has really been a deep wound. And to me, Muslim feminists are really enabling us to address these deep wounds. They are claiming their tradition, but at the same time, they are changing it. So they are the critical voices within the tradition. And the tradition is bound to respond to these critical voices. Otherwise, the tradition becomes irrelevant. Nothing is impossible for both men and women. 
Shanaz Khan is a 27-year-old woman from the northwestern part of Pakistan, an area that was controlled by the Taliban and other extremist groups until recently. She first put on a burqa when she was 15. Allah and his prophet liked for women to cover themselves, so I also like myself covered and hidden. Shanaz says no one objects to her burqa at home or at work, but her traditional covering does not mean she has a traditional attitude when it comes to women's rights. I think parents should not discriminate between sons and daughters. They have to provide an education to both because both sons and daughters are God's gifts to parents. So this kind of gender discrimination should end in our society. Across the Gulf, in the United Arab Emirates, 27-year-old Farah El-Amin describes herself as a chemical engineer, a sushi lover, and a fitness enthusiast. But she wouldn't call herself an Islamic feminist. I'm just a woman who happens to come from a Muslim background and live in a Muslim-majority country. I believe that one needs to be educated on gender roles and how they have come about. Personally, I think that forcing anybody to do something that they don't believe in or want to do is wrong. Therefore, if one identifies themselves as a Muslim, how they interpret Islam and how they view women's role in Islam is their business. Once they try to force it on others, I find that to be a breach of individuals' rights. Many young Muslim women, both in the Gulf and here in the U.S., are growing up in a world that's very different from that of their parents. The Internet and social media have given them access to resources and ideas that would have been impossible a generation ago. For example, back in January, the first all-women's mosque opened in the United States. Reporter Shara Morris went to the mosque in Los Angeles to see how these Muslim women are finding new ways to express their religion. It's a Friday afternoon at a multicultural center in downtown Los Angeles. Today, volunteers are converting the center into a mosque for a monthly prayer service. They roll out tan prayer mats along the red carpeted floor. There's a definite buzz in the air. Their photographers, cameramen, writers, even congregants are marking this moment. I took a selfie of us so that I can send it to my mom and share it with her. That's program manager Nellie Akbar. She's here at the Women's Mosque of America the first all-women's mosque in the United States. She's wearing black skinny jeans, has several tattoos on her wrists, and she borrowed a friend's winter scarf to cover her head for today's service. Maybe they would have called me out in a regular mosque or somebody would have like given me a dirty look, but I feel totally comfortable here. Like Nellie, the crowd today is mainly made up of 20 and 30-somethings. Many of them grew up with most of the freedoms living in the U.S. They're well-educated and have high-powered jobs. And they want to see themselves in their services, which is how the Women's Mosque of America was born. I thought, like, okay, if I call it the Women's Mosque of America, then it's going to be that big. That's Hasna Masnavi. She's the founder and president of the mosque, and she's just 28 years old. But it's actually been a lifelong dream of hers to build a mosque. So at the time, um, you know, I had no idea that it would be a women's mosque. It was this kind of secret plan I had as a child between me and God, and I wanted to build a mosque before I died. A couple of years ago, she enrolled in an online class on Islam led by a female Muslim scholar. I grew so inspired and so empowered. Um, You know, just having that female religious authority figure to look up to, um, that then when I started to go into the mosque on Friday, I, I started to think like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to just hear a woman speak to me, you know, from the minbar? It wasn't long after that she started planning the all-female mosque. Men do play a role in the Women's Mosque of America. There are two men on the board, and many men advise the board. 
But within the mosque walls, it's women only. The service and speeches are led by and for ladies. There's no official dress code, and the service is non-denominational. We have Sunnis, Shias, Sufis, all types of Muslims praying together. 69-year-old Fatma Kasamali came to today's service with her daughter. She says co-ed mosques can be strict. In her native Tanzania, women aren't even allowed to attend Friday services. When they do attend mosque, they're encouraged to wear modest clothing. Women's sections are often upstairs or in basements, and they're not as nice as the men's section. Co-ed mosque, you always feel second citizen because your, your space is too small, your space is not nicely done. Fatma says she often felt rejected, something Hasna Masnavi says is not in the spirit of Islam. The Women's Mosque of America is not a reaction uh, to any sort of state of American Muslim mosques. Um, it's really a celebration of the legacy of female Muslim scholarship and leadership. Hasna is even continuing the legacy of female leadership within her own family. After uh, I launched the mosque, my mom told me that her mom actually started the first Islamic women's school in Sri Lanka in the 50s. So I unknowingly, I think, kind of continued a legacy. <laughs> the mosque is changing the narrative for female Muslims in the U.S. Congregant Nelly Akbar says the mosque is helping her come to terms with her own identity. It's not easy growing up in America as a Muslim, especially with all the politics of it going on right now. And so you definitely question it and you doubt and you, you know, you go back and forth on things. And um, so it's nice to know that, you know, this was possible and that, that it's welcomed and we have powerful and educated women that I can look up to and I can admire and aspire to be like. After the service, Nellie heads back to her job at the Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center. The other congregants put on their shoes and roll up the mats. All that's left on the pulpit are two large banners with a teaching from the Quran. The quote on the right banner is from Allah. It says, and when my servants ask you about me, then truly I am near. Mosque founder Hasna Masnavi says, it means God is everywhere, in the heavens, on the earth, and in a woman's mosque, in a multicultural center, in downtown LA. For America Abroad, I'm Shara Morris in Los Angeles. Finally today, writer and performer Nadia Manzoor is a proud Muslim and feminist now. But as a headstrong young woman raised in a conservative Pakistani immigrant family in England, her curious intellect and wit were not welcomed. Being true to her stubborn and sarcastic spirit, she used comedy to push boundaries and promote a more inclusive understanding of Islam. And you should know some of her material highlighted here might not be suitable for children. Reporter Tennessee Watson brings us the story. Let's make it happen, baby. Hi, we're Shakes and Fats, and we are here to learn how to spot a feminist. Oh, look, there's one. Shugs and Fats is a web comedy about two Muslim women who've recently immigrated to Brooklyn, New York. When you look at someone like her, do you think she's a feminist? No. I can believe you're a feminist, yes. Feminity is not this. The creator of the program, Shugs, is Nadia Manzor. And she's on a crusade to use humor and honesty 
to talk about the challenges she faced as a young immigrant coming of age in the Western world. It's a bit surprising, I think, for people to see women dressed like this doing this kind of comedy. And I think that is part of where the humor is. Like, oh my God, I can't believe that Shugs and Fats, you know, got a vibrator and like didn't know what it was about. That's hilarious. Like, you know, well, why is that hilarious? Because like, we don't think about women in burqas being sexually expressed, you know, or um, understanding sexual fulfillment necessarily. These are the stereotypes that we hold. Shugs is more edgy. Rock and gold chains and bedazzled hijabs, while Fats, played by Indian comedian Radhika Vaz, is slightly more subdued. Well, I have something just for you. What is it? Cleanse day. This flushes everything out. I'm excited. No colon cancer for you. Yes. Ah, it's it's Most of the time, they're not doing anything that rebellious. They're trying a juice cleanse, working out at the gym, buying a pile of maxi pads from the Yemeni guy at the corner bodega. Typically you don't hear the perspective of a woman with hijab, and that's not technically you know, what we're doing because we both don't wear hijabs in our daily life. But I do come from a very traditional background, Rad's comes from a very traditional background, and that's kind of the, the mouthpieces, the hijab is kind of the mouthpiece for traditionalism. So um, I'm totally hoping that it's gonna create a lot of dialogue and also just make a lot of people laugh. Has it made anybody mad? Um, I'm sure it has. Um, I've gotten some comments on Facebook and that kind of thing, like, why are you, why are you doing this? You know, what do you think it's funny putting on a hijab and putting on an accent? And yeah, I mean, I kind of do, which is why I do it. But, um, you know, there's more to it than that. Like, it's not that, that's the thing. Like, you have to watch the show to understand. We're not making a mockery of women who choose to wear hijab. That's not the point of this. Nadia discovered the power of humor through a personal process to reconcile her past. Before creating Shugs and Fats, she wrote Burkoff, an autobiographical one-woman show showcasing 21 different characters and an emotional journey ranging from sarcastic to somber. Young women killed off by their parents for dishonoring their family name, for being too Western while they are raised in the West, because women are responsible for the reputation of the family. We are the carriers of shame. I was really trying to figure out so much about the confusion about what it meant to be, um, you know, an immigrant person living in the West, a Pakistani Muslim living in a secular society, trying to navigate so many different contradictions in terms of religion. It didn't seem that Islam, or I should say the way that Islam was taught to me, had room for somebody like me. In the show, there's a scene where Nadia is asking her Islamic studies teacher, the Mulvi Saab, about how God speaks. How can God speak if he doesn't have a mouth or a tongue or vocal cords? Vocal cords. I'll give you vocal cords, disgusting creature. You should be afraid of God. I wasn't afraid of God. I was afraid of Mulvi Saab. <laughs> and all the other authoritative patriarchs that laid down their own laws in the name of Allah. Producing Burkhoff helped her reclaim her Muslim identity and repair strained relationships. Sharing that journey has been transformative for her audiences too. I just wanted her to stop talking because I felt like she was spilling my secrets. 
Fiona Arbob saw the show in Dearborn, Michigan. It's definitely a great area in my life because I'm American, but I'm also Muslim, but I'm also Bengali. So it's really hard to navigate between the different spaces and the different cultures. I absolutely loved it. I definitely started crying, and I would definitely love to share it with my family. Burkhoff has played to sold-out audiences in New York, across North America, and Europe as well. And she's currently organizing a tour of the show in the Middle East, which has involved making some changes. The edits were much more um, looking at places where I say sh- and like saying something else, or when I say sex, saying something else. And it's literally taking particular words and getting my thesaurus out. Dubai has strict rules about provocative language and gestures. I was um, not sure about it. I questioned whether I would be losing the integrity of the play, the show, my own, you know, my own writing, my own story. My dad was kind of, uh, kind of bothered at one point. He was like, "Beta, all of the spice will go out of your show if you don't swear," you know. But she says the essence of the show is still there, which is something she's not willing to compromise on. At least she wasn't until recently. Sometimes people ask me, they'll be like, you know, are you scared that there's going to be a fatwa on you? What are you going to do when you go to Pakistan? Um, you know, do you, how do you get the courage to do this? How do you answer it? You know, in honesty. So, for example, I was uh, supposed to be going to Pakistan in February. We cancelled. Oh, we didn't cancel. We decided to postpone and think about it uh, to go in a different time because um, it seems pretty volatile and we're not really sure whether we're going to be you know, safe. And I really want to go and take the show there, but I just need to assess, you know, the situation. I'm, I'm planning on working and doing this work for a really long time, so I don't want to be reckless, you know. At the same time, if I was afraid, I wouldn't be doing this show. So it's, there's definitely some uh, larger confidence that I am connected to that is, you know, making me continue. Nadia's working on a sequel to Burkoff, focusing on the men in her life. A second season of Shugs and Fats was recently released online, and a third season is in production. For America Abroad, this is Tennessee Watson. It may be some time before Pakistan or any Muslim-majority country is ready for a show like Burkoff. But the debate over women's rights is happening in country after country. Women are leading that discussion, which they hope will lead to more equality for everyone. You've been listening to Understanding Islamic Feminism on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Mia Lobel and produced by Rob Sachs with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Malik Ayub Sumbal, Rami Rahimi, Lubna Takruri, and Emily Kagan. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at pri.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the Henry Luce Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.